All right. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Uh, tonight, me and my co-hosts are all cleaned up. We've used our skin rubs, our facial masks. We've done our thousand sit-ups. In fact, Jim, Jim is actually going to show us his abstinence in the spirit of Christian Bale. Uh, and so, and so now it's time to metaphorically blast some fucking Huey Lewis, Huey Lewis and the Lose. That's a great band. Good job, Noah. This intro is going well. Uh, tonight we're going to be discussing the 2000 film American Psycho, uh, American Psycho, starring uh, Batman, essentially, or is it Bateman? Batman, Bateman, whatever. Sorry, getting weird. Best intro we've ever had, guys. This is going 10 out of 10. Uh, anyway, American Psycho. Uh, it's a film that takes place in New York City in 1987, uh, where we see a handsome, young, urban professional, Patrick Bateman. I'm being attacked by my microphone cord here. Let's move that. Uh, and he lives essentially a second life as a uh, as a gruesome serial killer by night. So Bateman is this wealthy New York City investment banking executive who essentially hides his alternate psychopathic ego from his co-workers and friends as he delves deeper into his violent hedonistic fantasies. Um, this movie has really a knockout ensemble of actors in it, including the 10-inch William Defoe. Uh, five points, if you understand that reference. Or I should just call him the 10-inch Jonah. That's an inside joke. Uh, the fiance, Reese Witherspoon. Uh, the mistress, Samantha Mathis. The co-worker, Jared Leto. And the secretary, Chloe Sevigny. Uh, and all of these roles play a part in this dark comedy that examines the elements, the elements that make a man a monster. That's from the INDB page. I don't know how much of this movie is actually about examining the elements that make a man a monster. I think it's kind of about other stuff, but we'll get into that. Um, you know, we seem to be in kind of like a madman kick on this podcast. I mentioned that last week. I mean, the house that Jack built, uh, I saw the devil, excision, seven, creep. We we seem to love the idea of the madman on this podcast. In fact, it's really a huge part of horror, right? We have a fascination in the horror genre with psychopaths. I mean, go scroll the main page of Netflix and you'll find like half the shows that are advertised are on the topic of serial killers. We have this like fascination with uh, those that are off, people that are like us, but not really like us, right? There's something there. Um, but I think the commentary we may be able to draw from American Psycho uh, goes well above and beyond mere fascination into the mind of a serial killer, maybe into larger issues of like class structure or power or self-aggrandizement, narcissism, things like that. I mean, there's some meta commentary floating around this movie. That's a bit thicker, a bit more William Defoe, a bit more Jonah, if you will. Than the average uh, than the average psycho film. So, uh, in case you're new to this podcast, what we do here is each of our hosts selects what they take to be a well-made horror film, and the rest of us critique it. Uh, we talk about it. We muse about what it says about the person who selected it. Uh, this podcast is basically therapy for those with existential baggage, and since we all have existential baggage, it's really a podcast for everyone. At the end of the day. Um, I'm kind of rambling at this point. So anyway, Jim, Jim, this was your film, American Psycho, your selection. Tell us, uh, just give us kind of an, an intro here, why you selected this movie to discuss besides, you know, the fact that Patrick Bateman mimics, you know, mimics your workout levels when it comes to right. abs. I, I, already, I, I knew that was part of the reason, but what else? Why did you choose this film? Um, I mean, I don't work out to uh, to, to porn and, and violence screaming in the background, but aside from that, everything else is accurate. Did you um, see him wink? I saw him wink. I think he winked when he said that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I winked exactly like Christian Bale did in the film, too. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the reason I selected this is because I saw this film when it first came out in 2000. Um, I came away from it with a very specific interpretation. I thought I was rather sure what this film was doing and what it was about and 
and on and on and on. And then I sort of went on through for the rest of my life for the next 20 years. Um, then I started to hear a interpretation of the film or an interpretation of the film's ending rather that I found to be, and I, I heard it from more than one source, multiple sources uh, had this particular interpretation of the film's ending that I thought was just crazy. And I did what any reasonable human being would do. I put it on the list so that all my friends can talk about it. And uh, that's why we're here. That's why we're all here, um, essentially. And so I'll go through, I'll go through uh, the interpretation of the ending that um, I heard from multiple sources. And uh, then I'll sort of go through my own interpretation of the ending and of the film as a whole and uh, then we can go from there, essentially. Um, and I should also note that I am a big, the books don't matter uh, proponent. I'm a big proponent of the idea that the books don't matter. So whatever's in the book, uh, the film is sort of a separate art piece and a separate, um, it's saying a separate thing. Uh, because it's coming from different minds and and it's a collaborative art form. So I, I'm I'm a big proponent of the books don't matter. Although of course we will probably get into some of the differences between the film and the book. Uh, so the interpretation that I the controversial interpretation um, was essentially that uh, at the end it is confirmed that everything happens in Patrick Bateman's head that. There, he isn't actually a serial killer. He didn't actually kill Paul Allen. This is all in his head. And it's basically the, the entire movie takes place as sort of this revenge fantasy that Patrick Bateman has. And I think that that is uh, wrong. I think that that ignores some of the satirical elements of the film. And for me, it ignores some of the most important elements of the film, the, the satirical elements and sort of the social commentary that you were talking about earlier. Um, for me, it seems that if one were to arrive at the interpretation that everything existed inside his head and it was all kind of this fantasy, then that, that makes this film a horror movie first and a satire or anything else second. And I don't think that's true. I think this is a satire first. So what is it satirizing? Um, and it satirizes, to my mind, the uh, culture that Tom Wolfe described in Bonfire of the Vanities, where he called the characters that are portrayed in this film and portrayed in the book, Bonfire of the Vanities, um, as quote unquote masters of the universe, uh, people for whom a million dollars is a uh, a million dollar income is a pittance. How could you possibly live in New York and actually uh, actually be able to enjoy the city for what it is on a mere million dollars? Is kind of the the uh, the ethos that the masters of the universe um, uh, that that the masters of the universe portrays. And so I found American Psycho to be a satire of both that culture and of our larger culture's tendency toward conformity. So the way I read the ending is that 
he did in fact kill Paul Allen. It's just that all of the masters of the universe are so interchangeable that it is possible for one to be sitting across from another person and not recognize that that other person is Paul or Patrick or Joe or Chris or Steve or Jonah or Ben or Shara or whatever, that you can literally be sitting across from somebody and they are so interchangeable that they have um, dove into the ideas of conformity to this particular social social schema to the point that they are in, uh, irrecognizable from one person to the other. And so it is possible for an American psycho to exist among these, uh, a, a, a sociopath to exist among these these people and not only exist among these people, but actually thrive among these people because these people thrive on sociopathic tendencies. Um, and that's what I, I got out of the film. Now I can sort of back that up with specific scenes from the film. I mean, it begins with a mistaken identity and I don't think that it's much of a surprise that it also ends with a form of mistaken identity as well. You. Uh, Paul Allen's not dead. I saw, I had dinner with him in London two weeks ago. Um, that it's entirely possible that he was having dinner with just another master of the universe at that stage and thought it was Paul Allen. Um, so that's kind of my interpretation of the film. That's why I chose it. That's why I think that it's sort of, it, that, that my interpretation kind of differs from a popular interpretation that that um, that I've seen elsewhere. So now that I've done all that, <laughs> now that I've said all that, now it's time for me to talk to all my friends about it. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'll kind of turn it over to you guys and, and after giving my little five minute spiel on it. I, may I go first on this? Absolutely, sure. Okay, so I don't, first of all, I agree the movie's funny but only at the surface level. And if you think about it long enough, you realize it's actually a tragedy. And I think the book, I agree, is a different piece, but it helped me contextualize the movie more. I think the book helped me appreciate the movie more because it gave me a deeper nuance and understanding about the psychosis of, of Bateman. So I see it as a tragedy. And for all the reasons that you're saying, I think that Bateman is the victim. He, everyone is, uh, everyone in the film is a bad guy. And I think that him killing other people is kind of a catharsis. It, 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 at least I have to reference the book. The book's like 400 pages. He doesn't start killing people for the first quarter of the book. And by the time he does, the people that he kills are so loathsome you're kind of relieved to see them be um, exterminated. And I use that term deliberately because they are trash, they're, they're vermin. Um, every, because everybody looks the same, Bateman is trying to escape from this world that he's been born into and sucked into. He has no control, murder is the only way that he's been able to gain agency to differentiate him, himself and uh, escape from this uh, world that he didn't ask for. And nobody cares that people died, which kind of adds another 
nuance that whether Paul Allen died or not is it doesn't matter because nobody will notice, nobody will care. He's it doesn't matter in this world. Um, and the last thing I want to say before I'm going to turn it over is there are th I disagree um, that I think everything was in his head. And there are three scenes that I think would would back up that point. The first is when he blows up the police car by shooting it once with the gun. That was extremely cinematic. It was completely outside of the realm of any possibility. It's kind of giving an indication that it's it's unreal. Everything else in the movie what seemed glued to some resemblance of a reality that we recognize. And that was the first indication that this is something else. Second was the ATM saying, feed me a stray cat. That's something that no ATM would say. If he was sane and it was actually happening, it would not, the ATM wouldn't say that. It's showing that it's in his head. And the third, and this is a very important and subtle one, is when he's in the dry cleaner. And he's arguing with the, I guess, a Korean cleaning lady. And he says to her, um, if you don't shut the fuck up, I'm going to kill you. And then there's a very clever cut where you realize he didn't actually say that. It was what he was imagining he was going to say because it cuts to him mid-laughter while he was still arguing with her. His fantasy of her stepping back, she ste when he says, I'm going to kill you, she steps back in, like, in, in horror. But when it cuts, they're in mid-argument. And it's like that scene in many comedies, like one that comes to mind for some reason is uh, True Lies, when Schwarzenegger fantasizes about punching the guy who's having an affair with his wife, and then you realize he didn't actually do it. It's the same kind of cut that lets you know what he's thinking and then shows you what actually happened. So it gives you, it's like a split screen, the, the expectation and the reality, but happening in one frame. And that's part one of, I don't know what part two is yet, but that's whatever it's down so far. <laughs> so we've, we've touched on two issues. The first is the end. We went straight to the end. And I'm, I'm actually really glad you did that, Jim, because that is the, the biggest debate with this movie, right? Like if you Google this movie, that's it. That's that's the big debate. I actually think that's the least interesting part of this movie. Um, I, I so I, well, let's let's just kind of start like whoever talks by saying just immediately if you think it was all in his head or not. I, I, uh, I, I, I can see it both ways. I, I'm, I, I really don't know how to answer this. Uh, so here, here's the argument that it is in his head. The ATM tells him to, to feed a cat. Uh, his pistol skills are fucking unreal. They're amazing, right? Fucking Morpheus shit in this. Um, nobody hears the chainsaw in his apartment. That's kind of weird. But then you can make the argument nobody cares. Uh, or you can make the argument that the bodies were cleaned up by the management there so as to not make the place lose its value. I've read that as a, as a theory. His victims' bodies disappear. Uh, no one listens to his confessions. Paul Allen isn't dead, according to his lawyer. So these are all the reasons, right? The problem I have is I was watching an interview on the Charlie Rose show where the director actually explicitly contradicts this theory and says, no, um, it was not meant. I, I made an error. It, it says, I mean, she almost says that, like I made an error in this because I did not want that to come off that way. The author of the book says uh, something similar, right? He said he actually uh, went so far to say American Psycho was never meant to be a film and that the medium of the problem is that the medium of film demands answers that 
it's the film medium itself that is making this a question of value when it really maybe shouldn't be. So I, I can see it both ways, but I think the first thing that you start, or the second thing rather that you started talking about, about the loss of identity is the most important part of this movie. Um, you know, sort of the, the uh, uh, homogenization of yuppie elite culture. I think that is one of the central pieces of this film that maybe we should focus on. Um, so we we kind of touched on like the loss of identity and swapping names and how no one can remember who. But remember, one of the first scenes in this movie is Patrick Bateman looking in the mirror and saying, I simply am not there. It starts with a loss of identity. Um, and I think that that may be something like a key to unlocking, you know, sort of a, a central interpretation for the rest of the film. Um, so I, I kind of hope we I hope we navigate that way throughout the course of this film, because I think there are connections to that sort of loss of identity that are relevant to us in 2019 in sort of a social media craze culture connections also with sort of the materialism involved in you know, uh, our culture at this point, nearly 20 years later. So I hope we go that route. But what do you guys think? Shayra, Ben, do you like really quickly, do you think that this was all in Bateman's head or not? Um, I'm well, I mean, now that we know that the director says that that wasn't his intention and maybe not the author's intention. Um, I don't, I don't know if that would necessarily be called poisoning the well, but it definitely colors probably <laughs> my certainty and what I, I think I already thought. Um, I do think that the film was shot in such a way that it's supposed to give you the impression that the lines between reality and fantasy are kind of blurred. And I think that's sort of the theme for Bateman himself. Um, we talked about this a little bit whenever we had the episode on House That Jack Built, I think. And I made the point there that the film was shot in such a way that it was meant to give you the impression of the events from the, the main character's point of view. And I think that's kind of what was intended here as well. Um, so you do see these crazy things kind of happening. It seems unreal or surreal. Um, but I only think that that was supposed to be the case. Perhaps maybe the director was trying to give you that same impression that, you know, you're, you're viewing these events through the perspective of Patrick Bateman and therefore they just seem absolutely crazy. Like they seem completely unfeasible, unreal. And going back to the example about the bodies in the, uh, the apartment, um, I, I definitely see the point there, how that could potentially be made to sort of defend the other point of view where, you know, he goes back, but then maybe there was nothing there at all to begin with. Um, but I think that if you look at it from the perspective, okay, that this did happen, that it, it, it provides a stronger foundation for what I think really the main point of the movie is because a landlord that would do that sort of feeds into the same kind of culture that would make a Patrick Bateman. Um, they're looking for just that, that sort of like self-absorbed narcissistic, here's the service level impression. What actually happened doesn't really matter. It's just the impression that they're going to give the tenants because they care about preserving the property value. I think that that kind of like explanation really feed into the main theme of the film. Yeah. And real quick before, uh, before Shayra, um, the, remember that that's Paul Allen's apartment. So it's not even Patrick's apartment. It is somebody who has disappeared. And it's entirely possible that a landlord or Paul's family or any number of people who would actually recognize that Paul Allen is a person um, might have cleaned up that 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 crime scene. So this isn't it's not necessarily that if the bodies are there, then a tie to Patrick Bateman and therefore cops show up at Patrick Bateman's house the next day he is sort of squatting he's he's stealing paul's identity so that does from a plot point of view it does sort of uh it it, it complicates the idea that 
just because the bodies disappeared, then it must have been all of it, all in his head. Um, but yeah, I'll, I sort of interrupted. Uh, Sherrick, go ahead and um, what do you think? Um, if the director and the writer did not uh, mean for it to come across that way, they failed miserably. And I agree. I agree. Uh, I'm sorry. It just seems like it is ludicrous uh, and in his mind, and especially with the way that they cut the ending where she's looking in a book with all these like imagery. And it just seems like he might've been doodling while imagining this stuff so that he could cope with the mundane, ridiculous nature of the world with which they are trapped in. It, it makes so much sense with that ending. So if that's not what they were intending, uh, why do you edit things the way you did? Like the, the part that Jonah pointed out with the, the cut, that might've been just bad editing then maybe. I don't know, but it did come across as like, they made it look like she went back, but then they cut right where she's still talking to him in a normal position. It makes it look like she never, ever went like this. Um, it could just be bad editing. It could be bad storytelling. It could be weirdness. But I mean, the I think the theory fits within how it's edited and how, how they pieced it together. So it's a fun debate. Like, I, I love that that's a debate um, because that means that even though they didn't intend it that way, they managed to make their art tell that story and it means something to people in that way and that's just what art does right yeah, we look at art we interpret it our own way from our own perspectives and and then we go oh, okay well this has meaning for me like that maybe i cope that way sometimes i imagine like slicing someone's throat while i'm talking to them and they're annoying the shit out of me or whatever you know people do i don't do that i'm just i'm just saying like some of us have wild vivid imaginations about things and we try to cope with the world with which we live in so I don't know. I think that's kind of the interesting part about art, right? Um, well, I, would, I just want to say that, like, when you talk about poetry and songwriting and painting, it, it doesn't matter what the artist meant. Once it's out in the wild, it's no longer theirs. They can, no, it doesn't matter what they meant because it's, it's art. It's up for us to interpret. For some reason, movies aren't given that treatment, and they think they should. It doesn't, and yes, I mean, the artist, the screenwriter, the editor, the director are all welcome to say what they meant and how they interpret it. But once it's public work, it's ours. And so we have a right to say that's how we interpreted it. Whether it was good editing, bad editing, faulty interpretations, any reading of the film is valid if it's sincere. I just want to say while I... Um, I'm probably jumping ahead, but I feel like I should segue this in. Earlier I said it's a, a tragedy, and I just want to add to that. Like when he's talking to the hooker and he just brings the two prostitutes into his apartment, and he's like, where did you go to school? What did you want to be when you grew up? I forget the exact questions. He just wants to have a normal conversation, and they don't care. They just want to have sex with him. Mm. And all he does is he's just able, he just talks about music all the time, having these long, boring ass monologues, because that's all people are so materialistic. That's all they can talk about. And I think the key line that ties this into being a tragedy is when he's arguing with Reese Witherspoon in the car and he says, I just want to fit in. And I can't get that auto tuned uh, cover out of my head that was like Pastor Anders and Meme on YouTube. 
where it was like done as a um a weekend song like um American Psycho as a weekend song but that they kept playing that line over and over I just want to fit in and that really drills it in to the chorus of the song and that's where he's stuck he doesn't know who he is he doesn't know how to fit in and he just wants to return some videotapes that's like his out to escape from any situation he's in whether he has tapes or not is irrelevant anyway i'm rambling but i i just i would really argue that this is more of a it's not it's a tragic story as opposed to a horrific or funny one and if we laugh where does that put us i think that our ability to identify with Patrick kind of makes us see him as sort of an anti-hero. And if we're able to empathize with him, then we're better. Um, rather than vilifying him, I see him as kind of as a victim. But that's probably a different segue. So I had, oh, go ahead. You first, go ahead. Okay. Um, I, I believe that I interpret the film a little bit differently than you do, Jonah, but I do really agree that that, that line, um, I just want to fit in. I think that's super key here. Um, and overall, I really, I, I kind of view this as sort of, um, obviously it's incredibly nihilistic, but sort of like the existential quandary that you see playing out through this entire film is to me, it's sort of related to kind of like a search for meaning. And it just happens to be the case that within the culture that this is set and the thing that we're satirizing, that meaning is is put forward is as being able to be found through conformity and through um, a certain type of lifestyle with a certain level of wealth. Um, you've got to do this thing. You have to own these brands. You have to, you know, memorize these um, artists and their works. Um, you have to have these routines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I don't necessarily see it as Patrick like trying to escape. I, I think that conformity. In fact, if you go to uh, <laughs> uh, the Huey Lewis song, um, it, he he explicitly talks about that being about the pleasures of conformity. And I, I really think that that sort of colors the entire movie. Um, I think that this is something he believes is that you know he really needs to fit in because that's how you're going to find a meaningful, fulfilling life. It just isn't working, and that's where you have that that loss of identity, you've, you've become just like everyone else. And so essentially you've become hollowed out inside and you're essentially just this carbon copy, which of course then leads to this angst and this fury um, that gets played out through his, uh, through his violence. Um, yeah. Right. And I, I think that the satire comes, I mean, satire doesn't necessarily have to be funny, right? I mean, Jonathan Swift's uh, modest proposal is certainly satire. I don't necessarily think it's all that funny. I mean, some of a couple lines are are a little chuckle worthy, but it's it's taking a serious issue and extending it to its taking the opponent's point of view and extending it to its logical conclusion. So, modest proposal is uh, the British are treating the Irish like cattle. So, what would be the logical extension of that argument? you know, have eat Irish babies. Uh, that's that's one of the most uh, sort of uh, 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 foundational satires in the history of the English language. And, and I think that that same type of thing applies here. So if you take this film in opposition with sort of the masters of the universe culture, and you say, 
okay, so these authors are looking at the Masters of the Universe culture. What is the logical extension of that culture that is sociopathy uh, and conformity to the point of a loss of identity? Uh, conformity to the point where you could get away with murder and nobody would notice because you can't tell the difference between the murdered and the guy standing next to him. Um, that's what spoke so powerfully to me when I saw this film, you know, 19 years ago, and and I I it really resonated as a film about loss of identity, sure, but also the dangers of conformity and the dangers of the toxic masculinity that uh, imbues that world. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm sure we can talk about for a while is just how how masculinity is portrayed in this film and uh and, and to what degrees it is it is portrayed um as necessarily violent um and necessarily competitive uh we get that great sort of dick measuring contest with the the uh business cards that that's one example of that so uh yeah i mean i just it's just because it's satire does not necessarily mean it's a comedy just because uh but and 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 that i think the 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 target of the satire is what what i'm what i'm interested in as well as some of the themes that we've already been talking about so before we hop in any, anywhere else, I, I we got a really good question in chat, and this feels like a Jim Shera question. I, any of you can talk, but I'm just this is like very. I, this is what I thought of when I read this. Uh, so Dev asks, given Ellis's book was boycotted by feminists upon its release, could it be argued that a female director was? This is going to get us into a lot of hot water. That a uh, a female director was a studio mandated decision to temper the book's misogynistic overtones and overall public reception, or was Mary Heron the right director for the job? I actually I have uh, some backstory on on the creation of the movie that it. actually will help out a lot. Uh, it, it was originally, uh, Christian Bale was going to do the film. Everyone told him not to. They were saying, don't do this. It is career suicide. Do not make this movie. Do not be in this movie. And uh, he wanted Mary Heron to do the directing. And uh, then they started talking to Leonardo DiCaprio. And he was supposed to play Bateman. And they got Oliver Stone on, and they were going to have Oliver Stone and Leonardo DiCaprio. And Christian Bale was in an interview with, uh, um, I think it was, a, think it was a, uh, WSJ. But it, anyway, he was getting interviewed about it, and they were like talking about it, and he was talking about being in the movie. And they were like, well, you know that Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be playing your role. And he's like, you just called it my role. You know I'm going to play Bateman, and I was like, "Oh crap!" <laughs> like he was determined to be Bateman. He loved this piece, and um, he wanted Mary. He did not want Oliver Stone. He wanted Mary. He demanded that it was him and Mary. And finally, the studios were like, "If you guys can do it for ten million dollars, you guys can do it." And he's like, "We'll fucking do it. That's what we're gonna do." And so they did it. Um, so I, I know that it was he really wanted her to be the one who directed that film. That was very important to him. Um, I don't know if she might've implanted any of her uh, ideas in that way, but you can't argue that this is a, a, a movie that is trying to hurt women like some of the feminists were doing during that time period. This is actually showing the problems of men and uh, most importantly, the problems of greed in 80s 
America, uh, Reagan, and they mentioned Trump how many times or, or Trump's wives or whatever. They're constantly talking Trump, 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 Trump in this movie. So it is it is uh, showing how horrible greed and money hungry New Yorkers uh, in the Reagan times were. Uh, and so I, I, I think that she was targeting a lot of her animosity at men white men probably specifically honest let's be honest um especially you know when you see the first kill he does in the movie is when he goes down the alley and gets uh upset that someone's homeless like why don't you just get a job why don't you just work why are you hungry you smell like shit you know he's being a total asshole and not only does he kill the homeless guy but he actually stomps a dog to death so um i i do think this is an attack on white men um, I don't know that that's Mary doing that, though, or if that was just how the original source material was anyway. Well, I think Oliver Stone would have made a very different film, much like Natural, Natural Born Killers. I think he would have tried. I think he would have made a film like that. Uh, Mary Heron, I think, is a perfect director for this film um, because it does. I, I see it as a feminist film. I see it as a film that is, um, like you said, Shayra, uh, targeting white male culture and uh, targeting toxic masculinity. Just because it's portraying violence against women doesn't necessarily mean that it's supporting violence against women, of course. And uh, it, it's it's portraying violence against women in the in the manner in which men do, not caring about uh, not caring about what they say, viewing them only as sexual objects, viewing them based upon the color of their hair, viewing them based upon what, um, I mean, there's that scene with Chloe Sevigny where he's talking about how she has to wear a skirt to work. I mean, this kind of 80s bro macho bro culture is clearly being portrayed here and clearly being pilloried. Um, I don't see that as an Oliver Stone film. Um, Oliver Stone has has his his merits, but he has never been. I've never looked at an Oliver Stone film and said, you know what, that's a foundational film in feminist call in, in feminist <laughs> theory. Uh, so I I think I think Mary Heron, whether it's studio involvement or not, it's a great. It's best that it is. Uh, I, I think the film that that got produced. Uh, with a female director is is much better than a film that gets produced by an Oliver Stone, for example. I agree, and I think that it's one of the best. It's rivaled only by Mother Night. I forget who directed it, the Kurt Vonnegut novel. Those are the two best film book-to-film adaptations I've ever seen. I think that the book got everything right. It couldn't. There are certain things that they couldn't put in that were in the book, like when he kills a kid. There were just certain things that just wouldn't work in the film. But I think it's a spectacular adaptation and it needed to be done by a woman, but not for like social justice purposes. I think it needed a woman's perspective because it is a misogynistic source material and uh, sort of it gives the like a, a dual reading. Brett gave his interpretation and then she's interpreting his interpretation she's giving her interpretation of his reading of the world that he was creating. Now, there are two things, I mean, as despicable as Bateman is, there are two scenes, at least two scenes that are, he redeems himself that shows deep sensitivity that are sincere. The first is when he tells uh, Chloe Zevenji, he doesn't want to hurt her. She 
doesn't realize what he's talking about, but he catches himself and says, you should leave because he actually had feelings for her, whether they, and they were beyond sexual ideations. They were like just human sympathy. And the second, and I don't want to, I don't remember his name as a character, so I'm going to have to reduce him to the gay guy. And I'm sorry for doing that. I don't remember his character, but the homosexual guy, he nearly kills him in the bathroom, but he catches himself. And that was a real key moment for me because it was very, how nice of him to not kill him, right? Like of all the other people he's killing, he spared this guy. And there is definitely a, the sensitivity towards, I guess, especially in the eighties with all the homophobia and the AIDS crisis and everything. It, I don't know if that if this makes sense, but it gave. Humanity. No, it's, it, you 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 got me you got me thinking of something really interesting, Jonah. Let's let me let me bounce off that. So, okay. I mean, we're we're talking about loss of identity. We're talking about you know sort of the homogenization of a, a yuppie elitist culture maybe the gay character is the closest thing other than bateman to someone who stands out and who isn't part of the system you know maybe maybe he's the closest other than bateman maybe that's why bateman doesn't kill him you know maybe we could go that route that's really interesting um you guys you know you we mentioned loss of identity but i let me throw a slight curveball to that and refer to some of it as superficiality i think that the loss of identity is connected with um, the you know components of superficiality. I, you notice in the I, just, you have to watch the intro again, but in, in the intro, notice that he mentions uh, Patrick Bateman mentions the building that he lives in before he mentions his own name, which is I think a, a real key to this. Right? Uh, he's obsessed with always getting a decent table at the at the best places. Um, you know the aesthetic appeal of his secretary. I think that was mentioned. Um, business card scene, that dick measuring scene. Right? Like, it's clearly like well, that's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. When I first watched it, I'm like, what? The fuck is happening here? Like, is this really? This is serious, right? It's almost like a. It almost looks like he's about to like just rub one out when he's looking at some of these cards, you know. Uh, when he's putting the body in the taxi, the, the I think is Lewis, the, the the homosexual man says, "Um, you know, where'd you get that overnight bag? You know, fuck the body. You want know, to know where the bag's from, right?" Um, it's a scene with um uh with his uh, fiance with Reese Witherspoon, uh, during I think it's the Christmas party, and she says, oh, "What does Mister Grinch want for Christmas?" And don't say breast implants again, right? Like. I, like there's so, I mean, there's, it's the whole movie, right? It's, it's almost in every scene, right? I, there's a sense in which all of these characters, Bateman included, they're obsessed with all the wrong things. They're obsessed with all the wrong things. And I think that's, that is dancing around the idea of losing one's identity, um, being caught up in these things. So I want to throw that in there in addition to the loss of identity as we talk about that. So, yeah. So one thing I, I definitely want to call attention to here, and I think it ties together uh, caring about the wrong things like you were talking about, but also sort of like this uh, this sort of underlying feminist message in this movie, I think, calling question to um, the culture of toxic masculinity. So there is one scene um, where Bateman and um, his fiance are meeting, I think it's her cousins, but the two of them look like they're like early 90s grunge goth, like they could have been like members of the cure. Uh, I don't remember the names of the characters, but they're talking about tragedies in the world and and Bateman calls attention to this long, this laundry list of items that are, are quite a bit tied to social justice, I think. Um, he was talking about promoting the rights of, of minorities and disenfranchised groups while also, you know, promoting equal rights for women and ending world hunger and clothing and taking care of the homeless and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
but his friend uh in fact laughs at him when he's talking about this and i think it's it's fantastic and it calls i think question to another type of toxic masculinity um where you pay lip service to these types of things it's almost like virtue signaling I, I, this like whole scene is about him virtue signaling and I think that's that's brilliant to really sort of call that out, especially at the time period in which this was made. Because yes, he is talking about things that actually matter, but he's making it's it's almost like a mockery. It's it's so superficial and shallow, and he, it, essentially he's just saying it just for the social recognition that it actually does a disservice to those movements. Yeah, I agree. Um, I I especially agree about. Uh... I mean, it's trying to sort of checkmark all the aspects of to toxic masculinity in its satirical uh, lens. Um, let's, uh, I do want to talk about, uh, yeah, I mean, you talked about this in the, the um, in our chat, Shayra, and I, I want to bring it up in, in the regular podcast. This is uh, something that's coming in on the, uh, the chat uh, right now. Um, I don't know where to start with your comment. Byron, but it's, uh, you basically write about how in the book, um, Patrick Bateman is portrayed as homosexual or, or bi. And, um, as a result of that, there's elements in which there is a, uh, sort of a, a sexual energy, uh, associated with the, the, um, character Lewis, the, the homosexual character and the, um, attempted murder scene in the bathroom. Um, and how all of those, there's, there's kind of a, um, a sec, uh, a consummation that's being, um, that, that's, that's, uh, that's happening when Batman, when Bateman tries to, uh, to kill people. No, no you got it right. You got to write Batman. That's right. Yeah. I sort of summarized that, but, uh, I did it poorly, um, but yeah, I think that's an interesting comment as well. And I think that uh, I think Byron and um, and you, Ben, are right on when you start talking about the ways in which this film is satirizing. It's also satirizing that homophobia. Well, and I, I did, love he did invite Paul Allen over. I mean, shit, you know, it's like right. <laughs> yeah, they did. I, I I do like this uh this interpretation though because um it would explain why he didn't kill him. And it would also explain that why he probably isn't so attached to his fiance. He probably isn't even into her. A lot of a lot of times when you're homophobic, uh, it comes from you're just hating yourself as a homosexual. So I I love this interpretation. It it really fits actually, weirdly enough. Uh, but oh. why would why did he wash his hands though with his gloves still on afterwards? What was the meaning of that? Or is that just nothing? <laughs> oh, I, I, go ahead, Shana. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I have something to say, but it doesn't relate to the glove washing scene. So, well, I think it's both a like he's he's attracted uh, to uh, Lewis. There's there's a, a a sexuality associated with that scene um, on Bateman's part, a sexual desire on his part, but also a disgust at his own desire based upon the social conformity that he feels he has to adhere to. And so, uh, at the same time that he's got these social pressures to be a certain type of man, as soon as he feels a desire to step outside of that box, it then, uh, he is disgusted by both his own personal desires as they conflict with the uh, the the social the social um, 
role that he's supposed to play. And that's how I saw the glove washing scene as well. Well, I, I two things. One is I see the glove washing scene as just something much simpler, um, almost superficial. His gloves touched homosexual, not his bare hands, but his gloves. So he's cleaning the grime off the. He's cleaning the the, the sub to use a Jordan Peters the, the substrate that that touched um, something that he felt was forbidden. Now to go with that, if you look at American American politics, religion in America. Religion in the Middle East. Now, this is going to really get a lot of people really happy that I'm going to say this. There are men only clubs, right? No women allowed. And when you hang around men and it's a boys only club, that's kind of you know it's 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 questionable about um, why don't you want women as part of the conversation? It's very homoerotic in the same way that wrestling is. It's, it's male dominated. And so there's an affection and a bromance that may turn into romance. So I just think that um, the, the men only club of Wall Street investment bankers and how they're so trying to measure each other's dicks and one up each other and out muscle each other and who can spend the most money. And it's a contest. And there's a sort of eroticism that emerges from I did it better than you in that competition. And in that men only club where women don't matter, it's inevitable that uh, there's going to be homosexual tendencies. It's It's very, yeah, I was just going to say really, that's a really interesting, that has a lot of explanatory power because at least in this podcast, whenever Shara is not here, I just look at Ben and Jim very differently. Uh, Something happens. I'm straight as they come, but when Shara's not here, I'm like, damn, Jim, Jim's looking good today. I don't. So, know. so are you saying that Shara is the? To- are you saying that Shara is the token female that we have in the podcast? Sh- yeah, I Sh- am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, our, our tendencies at bay. <laughs> like, oh yeah, no, Ben's not as attractive as I thought he was. Um, but when uh, when other Ben is here, then Silver Fox takes over. <laughs> but but here's the thing, you guys. Now you're making my brain explode because I just realized the dick measuring contest makes so much more sense now because uh, when it gets to Paul's card, he's sweating. That's him getting a boner from the boner. And then uh, notice when the gay guy showed that he changed his card, and he's like, "Look at this now," and he's like, <gasps> like he was like, "Yeah, I didn't oh, yeah. really feel like that. I mean, it really <gasps> did feel like he was about." to like pop i was i was serious i'm like he's there's something he's into this or something i don't know yeah it wasn't just quick measuring it was hey look at my dick and he was like oh yeah that's that's good bone (laughs) he got some bone he got some bone cards and uh so when all three guys sort of whip whip it out and then slay them next to each other i mean (laughs) It's rather obvious what what the simplest thing there. You it know? just it just occurred to me right now, of the double entendre of bone, I had only seen it as uh like you know a physical like violence because the sound I forget whose card makes the sound but when he pulls it out of the uh, the card holder it makes that 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 knife sound, and so I associated that with cutting and bone and it didn't occur to me until just now oh my god i'm so thick pun intended (laughs) 
that um, it was a penis reference. I mean, it was obvious that it was a penis reference, but that really, you know, solidifies but it. That's not the only time bones come up, right? So when he was doing his crossword, doing his crossword, he wasn't even really doing his crossword. I don't know if you guys noticed, but the only two words in the crossword were meat and bone. And he was just writing it over and over, meat, bone, meat, bone, meat, bone, meat, bone. Um, I I think he's into bones. I'm oh my just God, saying. this is throwing off every interpretation I ever had for this movie. You guys are fucking me up here. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it throws off too many interpretations. I mean, it's just, uh, uh, like, I if we take this as a satire of Masters of the Universe um, era, uh, masculinity, then certainly homophobia would be a element of that uh, of that culture. And if this is what is the logical extension of that that culture, it would be it would have to include some sort of gay undertones, right? I mean, I I think this fits perfectly with a lot of the interpretations of the film, um, at least a lot of the ones that I find I find most convincing. So. I just want to throw in every time you say Masters of the Universe, I think of Skeletor and Dolph Lundgren. I just want yeah, to throw I, that in there. It is that's okay. I'm I think of that song from Seinfeld, oh, the original reference. Seconds, you're right. You you are much more you're more well learned than I, since that's the when, first thing when, that came to mind. When you say Master the Masters of the Universe, I don't know the original reference, but I think of the Seinfeld with uh, Master of the House. No, 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 no. <laughs> Jim, right. Jim is clearly Jim is clearly smarter than the rest of us. No, no, I just read Tom Wolfe. I think I've got the book over there. Like that's, uh, and it's it's sort of this shorthand of this culture that uh, that I think was uh, sort of at the heart of all of the um, '80s self delusion. Um, and and when I, I think the perfect title for a book about 80s self-delusion is The Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, and and so Wolf, I think, does it. Wolf was able to put a term to a lot of the things that, uh, uh, that, that are aspects of this culture, even though he may very well have stolen it from He-Man. That said, I don't <laughs> take Tom Wolf as the guy who's watching He-Man. <laughs> Tom Wolf, if you're watching, if you're still around, buddy, we want to see your Skeletor collection. It'd be great. Uh, okay, well, let's, let's segue. Great, great job, Noah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Noah. <laughs> yeah. So, he, so he is Skeletor at this point. Yeah, Jesus. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, we, there's been some uh, ch comments in the chat about like the, the some of the the best scenes in this film. We, we went over the uh, well, we went over some of the, the 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 main ones but i i gotta give the scene that impacted me the most was the intro the beginning i, I shouldn't say the intro because the intro is technically in the film it's the bar scene but after that when he's doing his his opening self uh you know his morning routine let's say um you know when i see that scene it actually is one of my favorite scenes in in most film like that scene is it just always stands out to me as um extremely important it's it uh, there's i mean besides the fact that he's ripped as fuck that's not why i'm Wait, into this it's just the homo is this? this is the homo thing happening again the opening uh, work the opening the, the opening scene where he's working out and showering and going over his self uh, care routine um and one of the th so i put some notes about what i noticed and this is what actually drew me to how i interpreted the movie is really that opening scene had a big impact so if you'll notice in that scene he gives way more information than necessary that's that's obvious right but Everything is entirely materialistic. There's a sense in which 
he, it's like you, you start to understand from the very beginning that he, that self value is tied to product, to products, right? Um, keeps his body in pristine condition because it's what, what's outside that matters. And, uh, you know, th there's even a part at the end where he says the complete, uh, counter to that, that it's not what's inside that matters. It's, it's what outside that matters. And I, 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 while I was doing the research for this, just putting my notes together, I shit you not, I found multiple articles, and I can link them on our social media, um, where people tried to do this exact morning routine to, to gauge its benefits. I'm not kidding. And this is 2019, right? Like this is this is sort of the the meta commentary, the the, the sort of important stuff that I got from the movie is that the, this is, <laughs> it's not so much in 2019, I think elitist yuppie culture, you know, 1980s, cokehead fucking Wall Street banker sort of culture anymore. This is middle class shit to a large extent now. I mean, with the, the commodification of value and the Instagrammable culture that we're sort of all a part of. And look, I mean, I'm not gonna shit. I, 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 I after this movie, I never wanna take photos of my food again. Like I'm one of those guys where I occasionally do that. Cause I'm like, oh, that looks good. I'm gonna Instagram this shit. This film like totally removed any desire for me to do that because it sort of made me understand like this isn't any more a part of that sort of culture like it was in the 80s you now see some of this stuff in in you know middle class cult middle class american ideals um so i wonder like part of why this movie is so impactful is how it's aged in light of social media and and in light of um how we interact with one another um the sort of uh embedded materialism and almost Fucking everywhere you look, um, you'll notice there's very in this movie there's very distinct signs of advertisements. Like the the camera will pan directly on an advertisement to make you see it. It's all over. The, there's maybe seven different shots of it all over the film. And I mean, as you're watching this video, you're gonna get YouTube advertisements for face wash, for skincare products, probably, or I don't know, penis enlargement. Now that we've talked about that 37 times, thanks, William Defoe. Like you, you know what I mean? Like this is. This is our language now, the commodification of these things in which we find our value through them. It's almost impossible to separate ourselves from them. It's no longer a part of that upper class yuppie culture. And I, I, I think this film finds its value in that kind of uh, informing people in that sort of way, and or at least challenging people. If there is anything like a challenge in this movie, it's, um, you know, a uh, um, you know, f finding what matters, I guess, uh, and making it, making sure that it's the right things. I don't know. Well, say what you will about what I'm about to say, but I'm going to make a comparison. I'm only going to mention it once. Fight Club. American Psycho and Fight Club are both stories where you have authors who are grabbing society by the collar and shaking them violently and saying, wake the fuck up, open your eyes, look at what you're doing to this world. And they're not, it's not poetry. It's not sad. I mean, maybe it is poetic and, and satirical, but they're desperate pleas for people to change the way they are. And a documentary and, you know, a research paper is not going to do it, but a novelization that people will laugh and joke and shrug off as just good old fun that they can quickly forget and be a commodity or kind of like the best way to get get people's attention. And both of them are, like, as I said, desperate pleas. Like, I think Brett Essen Ellis is trying, he's like shouting at us that 
he's not happy with the world that he's invented. He's looked into his crystal ball and saying, we have to make a change. And he created the universe of Patrick Bateman to hold a mirror to ourselves in the same way that Tyler Durden is a mirror of us. So. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And it sort of, it, it brings up this, uh, another comment from Byron. Um, Byron, you're, you're, you're joining the conversation quite a bit here, um, even in the uh, the the actual podcast content. Brett Easton Ellis has mentioned being baffled by letters he gets from people saying they want to be Bateman, although he ju doesn't judge them for it. And I think your uh, your comparison to Fight Club is apt, Jonah. Um, I will quibble briefly with you, Noah. Uh, you you say that this is sort of a film that's that's uh, saying that people should find the things that matter, find things that are uh, not commodities. I think you're absolutely right in the first bit you say, when you talk about how it's um, a commodification, like this is a world that's based upon commodification, it's a world based upon advertising, advertising. it's a world based upon the external and the appearances. I think all of that is right on. But one of the weaknesses of the film is that I think it, it is it is essentially nihilistic because it does not actually offer an alternative. I don't think that this is a film that's saying, you know, it's re what's really good, authentic human relationships because I don't yeah, think yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. I saw. I, so I agree. Let me let me clarify my comment. Uh, I also want to disagree that I, I don't think it's a weakness of the film that it's nihilistic. I think it's a strength. I think sometimes a film merely needs to ask the question and let the horror of that question sit. Right. So I think that this is a reflection of a culture of excess to a large extent. Like that's really what to me, if there's anything like a sentence or two I could draw from what this film is, it, it's, a, it's a reflection on a culture of excess. And that's it. It's not a uh, it's 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 not a, 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 a necessarily a way to fix that. It's a it's a black mirror, really. It's 1980s black mirror to a certain extent, like without the tech shit. Well, there is a lot of tech shit in this, but whatever. We don't need to go down that road. Um, yeah, like like and and I think um, maybe something like not getting trapped and being able to distinguish fantasy from reality. So I went back and and so I said, you know, this is now a middle class thing. Instagram is it, right. We. The moment I say Instagram, you know what I'm going to say, distinguishing fantasy from reality, right? Um, getting trapped into craving the approval of others as a way of finding one's identity. That's Bateman's problem, but that's today's problem for a lot of people, right? So I think, I think you're right. It ends with more or less a challenge to try and maybe, maybe we could say this, Jim, maybe, tell me if you agree with this. Um, maybe the challenge of the film is to try and view our own distortions of reality, right? Um, is it, it, do you think the film pushes that far? Do you think it's still necessarily nihilistic if, if we say that something of a, like one of the points of the film is something like to try and challenge our own view, our own distortions of reality? Do you think the film pushes that hard or is, am I reading too far into the movie? No, I think you're right there. That's, uh, that's where I agree with you. I think that it's, I think it does push our own distortions of reality. I think it pushes us to think about to what degree we are we are essentially conformist uh to what degree we are um commodifying our 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 personalities not just our external but to what degree the um 
it's sort of like deep down, I really am just superficial. Um, that's that that's the quote that kind of sums up this film. I think that's Mae West. I could be mistaken on that. But the point is, is that I think it is pushing us to be self-aware about the degree to which we are all conformist and um, and and completely superficial. Uh, the the reason I called it the film's nihilism a, a weakness of the film is because I am judging it based upon the genre conventions of mm. satire. Mm. And in a juvenilian satire, one of the genre conventions is you have to have a uh, let us not admit other impediments. And that's sort of a direct quote from um, Swift's modest proposal where he says, let's not do all of these completely reasonable solutions. Let's just eat Irish babies. Uh, it's one section in in Modest Proposal where he where he lists really reasonable solutions to the problems associated with Irish poverty, um, and 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 I don't see such a element in American Psycho. I don't see a moment in the film where he's saying, actually, the way out of this mess is this, that, and the other, um, which may be asking too much. It, you know, I may be. Um, imposing a little bit too much upon this film yet i still that's that's where i'm finding it a little bit i'm i'm finding it uh, a four star film instead of a five star film that's that's the the degree to which i find it uh so for you instead of the film ending with this confession has meant nothing you would like this confession has meant nothing unless and then we get the lesson that they were trying to tell it yeah i yeah i i i i agree i mean i i see that i see that i um yeah to the extent that it it bends um you know com components of of um what may uh films that fit a particular genre like uh, i i can see that as being a sin um but i i i guess when i say i prefer that i guess what i'm saying is really just my own cinematic taste i like I, this is this is the von trier stuff right this is the same stuff we had we were talking about von, about von trier i mean that is entirely von trier but i think in this film ending it with this confession has meant nothing it, it it's it's somber for a reason i i think that there's and we can get kind of to how that scene actually that very scene is is analogous to sartre's no exit um but uh you know there's oh my god yeah god I like I the. I don't know the reference. I mean, I don't know no exit. However, the last line in the book is "This is not an exit." He's at the bar. He's at the restaurant. He does his monologue about this confession has meant nothing. He continues to talk with people about who's going to win the next election, and he tries to get up from the conversation and he runs to the nearest door he can, but there's a sign on it that says "This is not an exit." Yep, that's, that's in the that's in the film. That that's in the film too. Um, in this, no, it, it, no, 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 well, no, 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 not not the dialogue, but the scene where he's actually it's panning in on him, and he says, uh, you know, this confession has meant nothing. If you look in the background, there's a sign, and that sign, oh, did, that I sign, never, yeah, that sign says, "This is not an exit." Right behind him, that was. Placed I never there noticed purposely. that. I'm gonna have to watch that again because if I were to ever come out with the, like a music album. This is not an exit would be the title of the album. Because it's just like that is such a profound I don't so I, I want to read Sartre's No Exit now. Because, you should. Because I definitely think that I mean this, <coughs> that that's what makes the film that's claustrophobic as fuck. I mean that that is terrifying that he can't escape. He's trapped in not, not only is he trapped in this world, but he's trapped in this cafe. 
You know what I mean? Like he's basically the walls are just closing in on him, and now he he's he's here for you are here forever. Kind yeah. Of, you know, oh, there, there's forever. there's yeah, there's definitely. I mean, there's definitely analogs, especially in the end scene. You know, conversations amongst people that are trapped in a room that appears to be hell, right? We could argue that this is Bateman's own hell, his own personal hell. He can't get catharsis. He can't escape. He's in his own personal hell, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, there are there is some analog there, but I-, I going Oh my back to, gosh, yeah. that means that both of the movies that we watched with serial killers end with them in hell. <laughs> oh shit, yeah, house, house that Jack built too. That's interesting. That's crazy. Yeah, I have no idea how to segue out of this. Uh, Anything else you guys want to add? That's why I'm just thinking um, about this. Actually, I, I wanted to uh, bring up a, uh, an issue with with Bateman that he runs into all the time. I think he has a Goldilocks. Uh, I think it's Goldilocks that does this uh, issue where he's always trying to look for stuff, but something's too hot or it's too cold or this is too hard. This is too soft. Every time he's trying to look for something, like if he's looking at somebody, they're not they don't care about themselves enough. They need to look better or, oh my gosh, they look too good. Now it's intimidating to me and I don't know how to deal with it. Or um, when it came to the homeless man he saw in the street, he was like, why don't you work, get a job? But, um, you know, stuff like excess still kind of disgusts him in a lot of ways. Like, it, and this is even represented when um, his fiance brings in a pig and he's just like, Ugh. like he, you can tell he's kind of disgusted with their displays uh, in many ways, but, he is also disgusted with anybody who is below him as well. So he can never, ever find any kind of uh, peace because he is always either saying it's too good or it's too bad or it's too this or it's too that. Um, and and it's, it's his struggle. Like his internal struggle is never being able to find anything that he can just settle for or be comfortable with or be happy with. And that's why he's constantly tortured by it. Sorry, I just need to bring that up. No, that's <laughs> I don't know interesting. If you guys have anything to say about yeah, that. no, I was just I was digesting that. That's interesting. Can I uh can I just mention if it hasn't been mentioned before that um this is this is a film where Batman kills the Joker. Can I just can I just say that? Sorry. I knew it was gonna come up. I knew somebody was gonna. I say had to. It. I had to be the one. I had to be the one. I had to be the one. I I want to say. Uh, I I want to get your opinion on this specifically, Jim, because I think that you'll appreciate this. Um, I want to get your opinion on this specifically. You mo probably more so than everybody else, but I would like to see your guys' opinions. Someone in the chat was talking about we should do a, we should do a movie by Cronenberg. Um, and analyze a movie by Cronenberg. Well, I had read that Cronenberg was also uh, listed to, as a possible director of this film. What would you have thought of this film if it was directed by Cronenberg? Oh, that would have been a really interesting film, wouldn't it? I think Cronenberg, Cronenberg has the sensitivity as a director and the, um, the, the balls as a director to be able to, I think, pull off both sides of what this film could be like it, it could be extraordinarily gruesome i mean it, i said that the books don't matter and they don't but um there's a scene where like rats eat their way out of a corpse in the book and on and on like it just gets really disgusting in in the book and i think Cronenberg would probably be able to do some of that well um i I think he probably has the sensitivity and the ability 
to be able to shoot some of the feminist angles of this film okay. I'm just happy with what we got. Like, I think this was kind of a perfect storm of a film. Um, I think if they made it today, then uh, then you certainly can't have a Cronenberg uh, doing it. I think a Deborah Gronick would, would be able to do really well with this film and uh, a Catherine Bigelow as well. Uh, those, those, I think a feminist, a, a truly feminist sensibility is necessary to make this film, you know, sort of walk the tightrope that it needs to walk without being exploitively gruesome. Um, I, I think that's the problem that this one might run into if it was given to Cronenberg, though I still <laughs> see it. I just, I want to go way back, way back to about two minutes ago um, when you said something, uh, just to tack on. I... I have a very hard time laughing when I read novels because I feel like authors are saying, I'm going to tell a joke. Are you ready? Here comes the joke. Did you see the joke? You get the joke? You know what I mean? Like you can just tell they're trying to be funny and nothing is unfunnier than trying to be funny. But there were two parts of this book that had me laughing out loud. Like I had to put the book down because it was laughing so hard. The first involves the rat he lets like this woman die in his apartment and like the rat comes through like the toilet drain and he starts preparing this extravagant dish with like cheese and chopped basil and sun-dried tomatoes and freshly made olive oil. And you think that it's, he's making a snack for himself, but no, he's feeding it to the rat. That's what's going in the mousetrap. And it made me laugh because my mom always put like peanut butter and cheese on a, like a Triscuit to give to rats and so this is just like an extension of just the absurdity mm -hmm. of um you know what he was feeding to the rats even the rats are living better than some of the people in the book and the other part was when he feeds his girlfriend the chocolate covered urinal cake and she's Ugh. eating it and she's eating it not knowing what it is and she's eating all the piss and, you know, just the excrement of all like the uh, the pu the putridness of society. I don't know. I guess you had to be there. Jim, isn't was... Jim, isn't that your favorite thing? The 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 eating of inanimate objects that are yeah, that's like my food? favorite thing. So, anyway, so I was just if you want to make me gag at the movie, then that's exactly <laughs> yeah. we figured out how to do it. I would say. I was able to not gag at American Psycho, but if you want to make me gag at it, then yeah, feed it, feed somebody urinal cakes and cannibalized rat. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> See, he's already getting sick. I was waiting for it. Oh, we are doing raw, by the way. So you need to be you need to be ready for that. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, all right, sorry. I'm not gonna rewatch it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I I guess uh um I don't know. Uh, unless anybody has has any other uh, things to bring up about this, I kind of want to focus on this satire angle and like the sort of generic conventions of this film. And I'm probably going to harp on this a little bit too much, but um, like, do you guys see this as a satire? And if so, in what way? And and can you, can we sort of like talk about the satirical elements of this as well? Um, I I think that's what. I initially found most interesting about the movie and uh, I kind of want to get your guys' point of view on it before we, we kind of close up. 
Yeah, I, I guess I can jump in on, on that point really quick. So um, just to take this to a conceptual level first, um, I guess one of the biggest uh, things that defines satire is satire is irony, or I, I believe I believe that would be right, definitionally speaking. Sure. Yeah, there's um, definitely elements. You need irony in order to make good satire, certainly. Sure. Um, it's unlike any satire that I've, I've, I've seen before, I think, um, because it's quite, it, it's, um, it's sort of like an existentialist satire. And we talked about how nihilistic the movie is. It's, it's deeply nihilistic. And I think, as I mentioned before, I do see this as sort of a movie, not necessarily, I don't know, like, it's almost like the violent stuff is, is, is secondary for me. I, I, the, this, the existential satire I see is, of course, like, people are, doing these things and sort of buying into this superficial culture in a search, a search for deeper meaning, ironically leading themselves to a place where they have an utter lack of meaning in their lives. And I think that's an incredibly important lesson. Um, I think it was done quite well. And really, I'm, if, if the only way that it could have been better is if they had focused less on the violence in the movie and just sort of highlighted that a little bit more. I'm not sure how they would have been able to do it because, of course, they need to show the consequence, I think, of that mode of thought. But, yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there is a deep irony here, and it's quite dark. And I really appreciate that message just because it shows um, a side of ourselves that we don't look at often enough. And I think it was pointed out in, uh, actually, in, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I think Dennis called it the God hole. It's like that point that that place in all of us that we're trying to fill with something. And everyone in this movie is trying to fill that with stuff and with status and with recognition and with, um, you know, approval from others. And it just leads to um, exactly the opposite of what everyone seems to be seeking out. Uh, yeah. I, I, I agree with you on that. Like, um, I don't, I don't think this is, satire that i've seen done really before it is very well it was unique maybe it's been done a lot now <laughs> but because you know once they do something good and well then people will copy it but actually what uh byron in the chat pointed out was that if cronenberg was going to remake this or, or direct this film he talked about taking out all the the violent aspects of it um and i think you kind of were hinting at that that maybe the violent stuff took away from what was actually horrific about the the film? What was actually something that should chill you to your bone and make you very uncomfortable and, and tr feel trapped and you know stuck? <laughs> you know, the violence is an escape in a way. So it, it, it when we talk about horror and comedy, we've always talked about how there's the building of tension and then the release and. Um, usually the release is supposed to be something that's more of a palate cleanser, but it almost feels like in this film, the building of tension is him experiencing life and people. And then the murders are the release, which is very weird way to do tension release. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah really I think that's that what it messes you up. Right. Like that's, I mean, I think that's the type of reversal you need in order to make a horror satire work. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. No, I, I have two comments here about that. One is that not allowing the release, first of all, not not giving him that release would make a much more horrific film, if that's what you're saying. The second thing is always, 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 whatever, whenever you don't see the monster or the thing that happens, you just hear the blood splatter. You have the idea of what happens. Somebody walks out of a room and you know they're dead, but not seeing it is way more intense than seeing it. Seeing it kind of takes the mystery away. So not 
having the idea that these things are stewing in his head, but not visualizing them, I think would make for a much more tense film. And it would just, yeah, that if one, I mean, the, it, this film could get remade and actually they made a, a sequel, which I didn't see, but it was terrible. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there is the, no sequel. We don't speak of the sequel. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I definitely, I love that interpretation. The only Cronenberg movie, I'm, I'm sure I've seen more than one, but the one that I know I've seen is Crash. And um, that definitely could be a, a horror. I, kind of, there are some overlaps, I think, between that film and this we could get into later. But uh we will be we will be doing Videodrome at some point because I really want to get your guys' take on that. So we will we will do some Cronenberg uh, at some point. I yeah, can't I, I wait. I definitely <laughs> think that Cronenberg would be a great a, a, a great um, director for for um, or something completely off the wall like Michel Gondry or something like that. You know, something completely childish and imaginative, and then giving but then him have him good. his messed up take on it. Yeah, right. Like the yeah. Tim Burton kind of effect, but it's a Cronenberg yeah. effect. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like it's all stop motion. Like the murder scenes are like <laughs> paper mache stop motion. But anyway. Well, like, you know, we're talking about satire, and uh, a friend of mine, he was saying that, oh, you guys are going to be talking about this movie. And he's like, have you seen what Funny or Die did to make fun of it? A satire of, of the film. And I said, no. There is a satire video. When you guys are done watching the show, please all go look it up. On uh, Funny or Die, uh, it is uh, Huey Lewis um, satirizing American Psycho with Weird Al. Uh, and Huey Lewis is Bateman, and he's walking around the house while Weird Al's kind of drunk, and he's telling him about the. Oh, is it. Yes, Huey Newis. That's I forgot. It's Huey Newis, according to Noah. Um, <laughs> but he he is uh, explaining to Weird Al the importance of American Psycho and what it was uh, meant to represent in American culture and in art. And so he's doing the exact same thing that Bateman was doing about Huey Lewis's music, and it is fantastically hilarious. And you guys should check it out. So. Make sure yeah, I don't know what I'm doing after this podcast. Um, that's hilarious. That's fantastic. No, I yeah, I mean, I think you, you you brought up a really good point that I didn't get a chance to comment on, Shayra, when you were talking about how it's sort of the murders are the way that this thing that this film releases the tension. And but at the same time, we also don't see as graphic the the graphic level of violence that we see in the book, you know, I think Byron, who we're just going to quote the entire thing, who said that the uh, the murders, this movie's murders look like a Disney film compared to the uh, movie uh, or compared to the book. Yeah. And, but it also, it serves a dual purpose. It both releases that tension and it also works to not fetishize the violence so that this becomes kind of a snuff film where we get to see a lot of women killed in, in gruesome ways. And so avoiding the fetishization of the violence, I think, is the necessary work that this director had to do in order to make this film work. Um, it, it, be, it, turns the, it keeps the film from being too exploitative. Uh, at least in my view. And, and on top of that, so if the release is the violence, 
do you notice the part where he finally is like horrified and freaked out and where we have a lot of the uh, video language that tells you that it's a scary situation happening? It's when he goes into Paul's apartment and all of the bodies are gone. That's the horror for him. He's, it's like, oh, where did my death and my death and destruction that brings me my my peace? Where did it go? Yeah, where did my work go? It's it's kind of similar to House that Jack built in that way because the murders almost become an art for him. Uh, it becomes a a an, a release for him. Yeah, I I agree. Um, when he, that's probably his most horrific moment. It's the moment when he realized he's, he's not going to get caught. He's not going to be released from this kind of conformist hell that he's condemned himself into. He is going to, there, this confession has meant nothing. Like that's, that's the moment I think that leads up to that, uh, the, the ending monologue that, that, that closes out the film. What about the what about the rest of you guys? What do you guys think? Are any other topics that you want to uh, to explore with this this movie? I have a couple of quotes from the author that we may want to may want to look at. Um, so uh, the uh, uh, this Ellis uh, says that GQ was inordinately helpful in costuming the characters in the book. They should have gotten credit, which is interesting. Um, and uh, Ellis explained that his book was really about the dandification of the American male. Uh, he says it was really about what uh, what is going on with men now in terms of surface narcissism. Beginning in the 80s, men were prettifying themselves. They were taking on a lot of the tropes of gay male culture and bringing it into straight male culture in terms of grooming, looking a certain way, going to the gym, waxing, and being almost the gay porn ideal. You can track that down to the way Calvin Klein advertised underwear uh, a movie in a movie like American Gigolo, the reemergence of Gentleman's Quarterly. That's, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about that. I'm just gonna keep harping on the fact that there's so much homoerotic stuff going on in this movie because that is mind blowing to me. I didn't realize it as much until uh, this podcast, but uh, yeah, I thought I'd throw that out there. If anyone wants to hop on it. Yeah, the GQification of the American male that, you know, it's sort of, uh, it, it's sort of, it, it dovetails with the rise of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and those kind of pop culture phenomenon, phenomena, which I, you know, first I have absolutely no trouble with from a political social point of view. Um, and it seems, I don't know if Ellis seems to have trouble with it. Like, I mean, is he, is his idealized male the Roadhouse characters? And if that's the case, I don't think I totally agree with him. Um, <laughs> Or go ahead, no. Yeah, no. I was just, I was just laughing. I I don't I don't know. I, it's as much like the movie. It just throws that out there and lets it hang. You know, no no answer. Yeah, I do remember reading a, an interview with him where he was talking about uh, his refusal to talk about his own sexuality publicly because he said that American Psycho reads differently if it was written by uh, an out homosexual male or an out bi male or an out straight male. So he refuses to talk about it, uh, talk about his sexuality publicly. Whether he has since talked about his sexuality, I'm not certain. But uh, when I was reading some Brett Easton Ellis, I went through a brief Brett Easton Ellis phase. Um, when I was reading it, it, it did seem to be an interesting aspect of how he's trying to remove his authorial uh, personality away from interpretations of the book. Yeah, that's the, sort of the anti-Clive Barker Hellraiser sort of thing, I think. Um, 
I, you you uh, opened it up to the floor and I realized in the end part of my notes, I had a couple questions that I wanted to ask the the panel here. Um, and forgive me, these are these are so Noah questions that they're not like important or intelligent at all. I'm as I'm reading them, I'm kind of laughing to myself. Um, if you were gonna have a night out on the town, guys, uh, would you rather have it with Patrick Bateman or Joseph from Creep? Which psycho would you rather have a night with? Bateman, hands down. Really? First of all, first of all, we would go to better restaurants with Patrick. <laughs> There's no doubt that I would get. Uh, I, I would get a, a table at the Orso if I went out with Patrick Bateman on a night in the town. Um, but yeah, I'll let everybody else, but I've got sort of a corollary to that question. All right. You know, when you, uh, let's, let's have everybody else answer uh, Patrick Bateman or uh, Joseph from Creep. Um, obviously Joseph, because uh, tubby time. It would be so much fun. <laughs> just great, 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 great minds think alike. If you're not, if you're not joking, because I would also choose Joseph from Creed. Yeah, no, I do, I do like Joseph. Um, but I, I honestly think that as a woman, for me, Bateman would be such a fucking prick to me, and I may have to slap him in the fucking soft face. Like, if he ever tried talking to me the way he talks to other women, I, I would have splashed a drink in his face, old fashioned style, or, or just made a big old scene because I know that scenes are what really pisses him off too. So I, I would, I, I don't think we'd get along very well. Yeah. The only long. thing Joseph would do with you is he would say, this is awkward, Shara. And the reason it's awkward is I'm a male and you're a female. And he would take his uh, towel off uh, and request, you know, that you, you would have to request. And show a very off. large member. Yeah. And that's it. And that would be, that's the extent, no pun intended. That's the extent of the negative interaction you would have as a female with Joseph. Probably, probably. Yeah, it is a female who gets the better of Joseph, but not. Uh, yep, that's right. Male gets the better of Patrick Bateman. That's yeah. Maybe it's just white male privilege that, that means <laughs> having a, a dinner at the Orso with uh, and and the Dorcia with uh, with Patrick Bateman. What about you, Ben? What do you think? Oh no, it's Bateman hands down. I'm I'm definitely going to lean heavily on my white male privilege on that, but also because I sort of get the the draw of the experience of very nice sort of five star restaurants with twelve courses of very small plates of food that you can take pictures of and post on Instagram. I totally love uh, it. You are the problem. You are the problem. And you know what? I'm completely okay with that. I'm the problem, <laughs> Ben. Uh, what about you, Jonah? You're not going to like my answer. I haven't seen Creep yet, so ask me a different question. Give me. Oh my God! Wait, I could. I we, we have to strangle him. We have to strangle him. Oh no! Ask me another. Give me another choice. What uh, are the other? What are the other horror films we've done that have? Uh, so I I know. Okay. Would you rather? Would you rather go out with Bateman or the Tire? Well, the Tire. Oh, the Tire. Okay. Look at it. Look at his shirt. He's got That's, the Tire on his shirt. You know, I mean, but the Tire. I mean. Oh my! Um, <laughs> all right, so you, your question. What do you? Uh, are you? Are you? Oh, I'm Joseph. I'm totally yeah. Joseph. So, I, yeah. um, I listen. I posted in the group the video I referenced earlier about um, the song, the weekend song. That's to the you know American Psycho. I'm gonna request that you put that in the. A link it in the in the podcast, like link it in the YouTube video or in the podcast notes or whatever. Hell yeah! Okay, done. Um, uh, yeah. So okay. I, I don't. Uh, if so, I guess a, a better choice. We haven't done 
um fuck what is it the, my movie uh peeping tom we haven't done it was my choice between bateman and him tom is way more i mean tom, that's probably a good comparison actually it would definitely be bateman but tom is definitely more sympathetic i think i mean he his i don't know that's actually that's actually i need to think about that i need to go to my cave and think about we have that. we have prompted a good question for jonah i, I like this yeah. um all right uh what does what does dorcia represent i gotta know before that for you guys before we before we do that I, okay. it, there's one sort of question that uh sort of dovetails with with your would you rather bateman or joseph and that was the um i think one of the things that this film sort of falls into that i don't I'm kind of ambivalent about is when I watch this movie and I've seen it, seen it a couple times and each time I'm a little bit jealous of Patrick Bateman's life, even though I know that the film is satirizing Bateman's life and condemning my own jealousy. And there's like the idea of having a job where I don't have to work because we never see Patrick work, um, having a uh, income that allows me to live, on 81st over, overlooking the park. Yes, please. In that apartment. Yes, please. Uh, having an income where I can go to the Dorcia and uh, which I don't think is actually a real restaurant. I know that the Orso is, they mentioned the Orso and I've actually ate, eaten at the Orso and oh, uh, now you know why I'm jealous of it. Uh, it's, and so I, I think that's one of the interesting things about satirical or um, condemning the films that condemn the lifestyle that they, they portray. In some cases, in well, in many cases, the film is explicitly saying lifestyle is bad. But at the same time, there are moments in this film where it's also lifestyle is badass. And uh, I, so I found that to be, I found there to be sort of an ambivalence in myself as I was watching that film, or watching American Psycho. Am I the only one who is really doubling down on white male privilege right now? Or we, we should all we should all say yes, even we though all, I know we should say yes. All one white male privilege. That is a truth. Okay, that's why it's called privilege. You, you I want it? I actually, I don't think I want white male privilege in the form that it exists in today. I don't want to be complicit, and I don't want to be normal or whatever, whatever, you know, like the, the majority is, I don't want that. I'm sorry. And I don't, I mean, I'm not saying I want to be a minority and oppressed, but I, I don't want to be elite if, if that's the right way to put it. Well, I'm going to go ahead and be complicit. Let me explain why, because it's fucking awesome. Um, look, I guess like the equivalent uh, where I am in Chicago of Dorcia would be Alinea. Um, it's a, it's a world-class restaurant. It's extremely expensive, very hard to get into, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think it's normal to want to be able to do stuff like that and go to these kinds of places. And it's just how, how it's portrayed and how it's done, why it's done. It's, it's really the why that is really the kicker here. Um, Dorcia in the movie and perhaps in the book, I think is an icon. Um, and it's really just primarily used to, to display a certain type of lifestyle. It's to show that you do fit in. And that's, that's really 100% it. Like, of course you want to be seen there. They really care about who's in the restaurant when they go, because they want to be seen enjoying that food with the other people who are just like them, who they want to fit in with. And that's the extent of what they're thinking about whenever they go to places like this. But 
maybe okay and maybe it is privileged to think this way but I, I do think that it's natural to want to be able to do amazing things and have amazing experiences and to be completely fair and completely honest the things that these types of people do are amazing they just do them for the wrong reason i think so if you're going to go to a place like dorcia or linea or you're going to have a yacht and you're going to go out on the ocean or you're like you're going to drive your lamborghini that's a really awesome experience that perhaps you could not fall into their their same pitfalls by using them the right way and enjoying them with other people you know what i mean it's, it's really about the experience versus the icon and if you can go with one versus the other i think you can avoid the trap that they're falling into in this movie I'm, the I'm not saying you're wrong because I this Point, though. I'm not saying you're wrong because this is not a matter of right or wrong. This is an opinion. So I, I don't agree with your opinion, but I'm not saying you're wrong. Uh, if people like Casey Neistat, if you watch his videos where he's like jet skiing on the bed, he's a huge YouTuber. He has a million subscribers and he does all these this crazy shit. He has sponsorships from out the wazoo and everything is a montage of him you know it's like his life is that people are awesome like videos basically he drives expensive cars gets fast women fast cars skydiving and rock climbing and you know the alps and you know jet skiing with like naked supermodels and I don't that that's completely boring and unattractive to me. I mean, most people want that life, but I don't he's the one who's doing it right. You know, he he I, I don't think he's like, you know, uh, people in American Psycho, but he's the one who is living that extravagant life, that elite life that supposedly we all want that I want no part of. Second question, is Dorsey a real restaurant? Like an actual? No, I don't, no, I don't think so. No. I don't think so. Is um, some of the other places they mention are real restaurants, though. I I, I just want to point out. Okay, so we need to differentiate certain factors in here, and maybe this is where we'll all get on the on the same page. Uh, there's a difference between flexing and uh, enjoying something that's really awesome that you actually enjoy doing. Flexing is when you're just trying to show off and and let everybody know how great you are. Like try to show off that you have a lot of money. Uh, I love going out to really nice restaurants, having really delicious, wonderful food with my friends, but I don't do it, um, to show off in front of a bunch of people or even to really network. It's more of a social interaction and there's bonding moments. And when you do something extraordinary or out of, you know, what your mundane life does, uh, those extraordinary moments stick in your memory a lot more and you're, you're creating lasting memories with people that you care about. If you make it about that, then it can be a fantastic experience, a wonderful, beautiful, lovely experience. But if you're going to places just to be seen and and to show off your newest dress because you want everybody to be jealous of you, uh, those kinds of aspirations are probably gonna lead you down a, a, a path of, to depression, <laughs> you know? So like, I know that Noah, I see the posts that your wife does, and they're beautiful pictures of wonderful places she goes to, delicious food she's eating, but it never feels like a flex. It's never like, I get to do this and you all suck, be jealous. It's like, look at all my wonderful friends and all of my happy things that I'm enjoying and yay. There, it's about attitude. I'm gonna, right I'm gonna attitude. tell her, I'm gonna tell her to flex now. Now I'm gonna tell her to flex. <laughs> no. I think no. I think Sharon just said that L is the hero of American Psycho. <laughs> isn't it though? But isn't it though? 
kind of a little bit, you have to admit, a little bit about Nini, Nini, Nini. It depends. I, did this thing I don't think so. I, I don't think why so. do you need to post it on social media? It's, because it's a form of journaling and it's a form of sharing with your friends. <laughs> just like, you know, when you call a friend and you're like, hey, we just got back from blah, blah, blah. We had so much fun, yada, yada, yada. Social media is a different way of making phone calls now. I so. just, I guess my perspective, and this is me, and so I don't expect anyone to understand this or adopt this worldview. Was that a head, forehead rubbing frustration? No, okay. Was that I'm personally i'm so depressed and my confidence is so low maybe it's a sense of unworthiness or of not being able to have those experiences or guilt for having those experiences but i just there's kind of a disgust i have that that's associated with that extravagance I, I maybe had to we get it. You want your friends to be unhappy, okay? <laughs> yeah. What, I, what, I, what I've learned from this is we're we're taking this bitch to Dorcia. That's what we're doing. <laughs> That's right. That's what we're doing. I'll, we're gonna get I'll the eight have, o'clock, eight o'clock reservations. I'll just have the, I'll just have water, please. You know, like yeah. But I but I think you guys. So this is Jim. You you your your question is a really complex one, right? Like we're all, and I think we're hitting all the different reasons why. Um, our, our buddy Byron in the chat, he think he said it really well, where he said the message of American Psycho is not, is not to avoid nice things. Like that's, if you're, you're the appeal of the movie wouldn't be there if you watched American Psycho and saw the life of Patrick Bateman and didn't have some degree of envy. Like, I don't think that's the sin uh, or ace in at all. When you watch American Psycho, it's being absorbed by it, find uh, it being a, a, a culture of narcissism, having it turn you into a human selfie Right, like these are the these are the problems associated with it. But there's a power in in wanting to have those things. I watched the film today, and that's one of the main things I felt when I watched this. I was like, "Damn, that's a nice place. I'd love to have a view like that." You know, but I I, I don't think there's anything inherently negative in the desire to want to have nice things. I think what the negativity becomes is when it's an absorption into that lifestyle, such that you lose your authenticity, you lose identity, you devalue humans in place of material things. Right. Um, my wife's never going to post a selfie on Instagram again uh, 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 of our food ever again. Um, but yeah, no, I, it's a great, that's a great question because um, I think the, some of the way the film finds its power is in manifesting that desire in you. I mean, you are a white male. So clearly that was going to happen from the moment you turn the, the movie on, you know, so. I, yeah. And saw my workout routine. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I was going to say, like, you could, you could kick his ass. He only does a thousand crunches, Jim. You could do way more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and Ben actually answered Ben actually answered my question when he he uh, I think very intelligently when we said when I asked what does Dorcia represent um, so you guys kind of you guys kind of went you guys answered two of my questions in one um, I got one more question but I'll I, I've been taking too much time I'll let y'all go for no, it. no no what's your what's your last question I'm I'm curious I <laughs> yeah. I, I I think I said most of what what's in my notes God these this is such a this is such a fucking superficial question which is so ironic. This is such a dumb question. You guys have been asking such good questions. Um, if Patrick Bateman were alive in 2019, which social media platform would Bateman use the most? Insta. I mean, I think Insta or Snapchat, I think. I, I feel like Bateman possibly be a video pod podcaster like us, except he wouldn't discuss movies. I think he'd discuss music. 
you fucking nailed it. The easy answer is Instagram. And I thought that too. But then I was thinking the way the monologues, the talking, the way YouTube, he'd be doing what we do. We're basically, Pat. we're a conglomerate of, Pat, we're Patrick Bateman is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, we do our little dances at the beginning of every uh, podcast too. I think he would use Twitter Trump style, basically. Ah. Or he would just basically, it would just be a transcript of everything that's in his head at all times. You know what I mean? That way he gets the podcast, but it's in text form and he gets the pictures and the video and he can attach pot. You know what I mean? He can attach, there's all, you know what I'm saying? So like, he'll be like, look at this fucking line at, uh, you know, he used like, um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, what Periscope. He'll be like, look at this fucking line at Dorcia, you know, <laughs> so yeah, so I yeah, definitely but, think that but, but, uh, uh, an obscene use of uh, um, of uh, Twitter. Basically. I could I could definitely see a reimagining of his confession scene where instead of calling his lawyer, he's just sending out a bunch of batshit crazy tweets, but everyone thinks it's a joke. <laughs> Oddly enough, that's a, a spoiler alert for Ingrid Goes West. But uh, that's exactly what happens at the end of Ingrid Goes West, uh, which is, I think, a really good satire as well. So that's, uh, uh, it's not a, yeah, Ingrid Goes West is a satire. I, I'll stand by that one. And he would not step anywhere near Facebook because Facebook is for old people. I know that that would be his argument for it, too. Yeah, I don't know if he could fit into 100 or 280 characters on Twitter. Uh, I think you're right, though. Uh, YouTube or uh, or Insta would be. I actually, I have I have a better answer. Live Journal, and I'll tell you why. Because he's so out of touch with everybody else. He doesn't know. He just wants to fit in, and nobody listens to him. Nobody hears him or sees him or cares about what he has to say. So it's basically like a platform where he gets to say everything he wants to say, and yet it's completely unheard and unseen. So I think Live Journal. Um, Interesting. Dude, how did we miss this? Someone in the chat uh, mentioned a Tinder or Grinder. I was I was thinking. Yeah. That. I was actually thinking that, but that's not that's a dating app. That's a different question. But I definitely think you would use uh, Tinder. Um, he sees or, Lewis on Grinder. Can you imagine <laughs> what he would do? Yeah, that would. Yeah. This took a turn. This is what happens when yeah. I ask questions. You realize this. We go away from the intelligent shit. What you're doing just... is you're rewriting it for today's modern age, and we're going to make a movie soon. Uh, look for it. Deadly Analysis does American Psycho for 2020. It's coming to theaters. Yeah, our Dorcia will be Olive Garden. So <laughs> <laughs> If we can't get it's true. Mail after his uh, after his Oscar nominations, then uh, you're... Have to get... <laughs> I just want to say there's a... <laughs> Oh, I'm the hair. There's a part in the book. Actually, this was another part that made me laugh. There's a part in the book when he tries, he goes like to a deli and he tries to order just regular people food. I think it was like a burger and a milkshake. And he doesn't know how, what to do with it. He doesn't know how to eat it. He doesn't know, like he, he's looking at the cup like, like, like it's an alien. Like, he, like he's, he's not used to like plebeian food. So he can't like acclimate. And then he sees like an artist on the street with a cup, it's a coffee cup. And he drops like a hundred dollars into it, not realizing that it's for coffee. 
and he just dropped a dirty hundred dollar bill and she's like hey fuck you asshole and he apologizes to her he's like sorry he was just trying to help her you know what i'm saying so like he, it's another moment of humanity where he's trying to do a good thing but he ends up on not fitting in not knowing how to be part of society and so mm. anyway mm. That, that, that's that, interesting that, yeah so I laughed because the, the the reveal of it, it actually we had coffee in the cup. It was surprising. So, um, do you guys have do you guys have any other notes? That's it for me. I'm I'm done. All right, um, all right. Well, let's score this movie. You guys want to score this movie? This would be an interesting score. I'm ready to score. Uh, all right, I'll um shit. I I gotta think about it a little more. Fuck, I was about to give my score and then I'm like, wait, that's too low. All right, one of you guys go. Shut up. Don't look all at right, me. I'll go. I'll go. So. As a horror film, I give it like a zero because I don't think it's a horror film, not traditional horror, but as psychological torment, I give it like a nine, I think, about the tragedy of him and the situation he's in and the pressures of society and not and all the things we discussed and the, the feeling of being suffocated is definitely much more terrifying than the idea of a serial killer just, you know, like, slasher film that just doesn't scare me the psychosis of, Pat, of bateman is what i find terrifying so nine on that in terms of just a slasher killer film not he doesn't even register not even zero it's just no done good night <laughs> so. who else wants, who else wants to go oh i'll go uh I give this a 8 out of 10. This is a, a solid film. It's entertaining. I've seen it a bajillion times. I could probably quote along with it. But what's funny is I've seen it so many times and never ever thought about the fact that he's gay. And now that that has been presented, it's a whole new movie. And I'll probably end up watching it a whole bunch more times trying to figure this all out. Because I think it's fascinating. So this is why I love doing this show. Even a movie I've seen a bunch of times gets kind of refreshing through all the different people's eyes. So I, I, so I love this kind of fellowship, but it, it does make me excited about going to see Bateman bring Paul back up to his apartment and uh, he smashes Paul and, and it has a whole new connotation now. <laughs> so smashes Paul. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm so glad that we did this cause it's refreshing. I, I like this. Okay. I'll go. I think I'm ready. All right. All right. Uh, yeah, I I uh, I've seen this movie. I think it's my third viewing of the film. Uh, I haven't read the book. Um, uh, we, we got a lot of shit for not reading the book when we did The Exorcist. So I like the way Jim opened this with, you know, fuck the book. Or if we're gonna talk about the movie, not that the book doesn't matter, but we're talking about the movie. But we did get into the book anyway. Uh, I saw this as kind of a um, as a challenge of of distortion and reality. Um, you know, uh, being being caught up in in the craving uh, uh, of approval from others. Uh, materialism, I think, the, in fact, even the more we talk about this, it's starting to dawn on me that there's a really heavy emphasis in materialism in this film that I think becomes more central the more I think about it. Uh, one of the, the quotes from the author that I didn't get to, I, I didn't realize it was in my notes, um, says, uh, and this is from the, the, the author of the book, says um, that the book is about lifestyle being sold as life, a lifestyle that never seemed to include passion, creativity, curiosity, romance, pain, everything meaningful wiped away in favor of surfaces, in favor of looking good, having money, having six-pack abs, dating the hottest porn star, going to the hottest clubs. Uh, he says, I think Fight Club is also about this too, the idea that men are being sold a bill of goods about what they have to be in order to feel good about themselves or to feel important. 
no one can really love, live up to these ideals. So there's an immense amount of dissatisfaction roiling through the collective male psyche. Patrick Bateman is the extreme embodiment of that dissatisfaction. Nothing fulfills him. The more he acquires, the emptier he feels. And I think that last sentence can serve as something like a warning for people in 2019 about the way they approach materialism today, the way they approach sort of selfie culture today, social media. I'm never posting again on social media after this ever. It's over. Um, so I, I, that's sort of the superficiality materialism bit is something that dawned on me more the more I watched this movie and even the more throughout the conversation we've had. So I'd give um, overall, the film wasn't scary to me. Don't necessarily think it was meant to be scary in traditional horror sense. Maybe argue some of it was. Uh, I'd give it. I'd give it an eight out of ten. Solid eight out of ten. I. I. I, I the more I watch it, the more I uh, seem to get something else out of it. So I got to give it some extra points for that. Uh, so yeah, I give it a solid eight out of ten. All right, I'll go ahead and go next. Um, I. I do think this definitely qualifies as a horror. I think it's actually pretty good. I would think about this as being sort of an existential horror. Um, as I've mentioned, um, and and honestly, I yes, like the book doesn't matter or anything like that. But I think about the execution of the film, in in the success that it has in portraying what I believe it was supposed to be portraying. And like to to be fair, I haven't actually read the book, so this is really just based on like other people's interpretations and so on and so forth. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, the the monotonous sort of listing and ritualism and all of that, I think was supposed to be definitely there for, for uh, tension building. It was supposed to seem completely unfulfilling and ridiculous. And, and the murder was of course supposed to be seen as sort of like a release from that tension. Um, but I think the underlying thing there was that, you know, it, it why, why is that the case? Right. So maybe, maybe for Patrick, like that was supposed to portray something close to something that was genuinely important, right? Like all this other stuff is completely unimportant bullshit. But whenever we're reminded about our own mortality, I think we can come to some really interesting realizations and some some type of enlightenment. And that's a sort of theme that you see through all kinds of books and all kinds of movies. When people are reminded of their own mortality, they come to a point of enlightenment. And so I think that's really cool. Um, the other part of this that I think is absolutely fascinating and honestly timeless, and if you consider this and make it about this timeless sort of element, then the book itself might even be classified as literature and the movie potentially a, um, a, a classic in some ways that there is this place within all of us that we're sort of trying to, to fill and, and bring meaning to ourselves, um, whether that's through religion or through materialism or through relationships or so on and so forth. Like we as humans have this, this thing about us where we have to have this sense of meaning in our lives. Um, we're always seeking meaning through one format or another. And so it really does speak, I think, to a deep sort of sort of element of the human condition. Um, and I think that's really cool about it. I don't necessarily know how much that was really portrayed clearly in the film, but it's definitely there. And really the the sort of elements that kind of like lead to the the violent sort of explosions and the the criminal behaviors, the psychopathic behaviors really seem to stem from, as we've sort of mentioned, the repression of perhaps desires that didn't fit with the template of what this person thought was going to bring them meaning. And so that could easily apply to something like a religion, especially if we're talking about homosexuality, where it's this particular set of rules that you have to follow if you want to achieve the best possible life and then achieve meaning in life through um, life after death. 
you know, there, I mean, it's like, it can really be tied into a whole lot of different things. But again, like this is me just sort of pontificating about what I think the meaning is supposed to be. I'm not sure that the execution was entirely there. The execution was good. I think the director did a good job for what they were given. This is a really heavy and difficult kind of thing to, to try and communicate, I think. But overall, I would honestly have to give this like a 7 out of 10, maybe a 7.5 out of 10, just because I think there there is like important timeless elements here. But the execution was just a little bit confusing. You know, I mean, we, we got caught up in <clears throat> trying to decide whether or not the things that happened were real or not. You know, it's there, there's a lot there to distract you, I think, from the main point or what I see as the main point. And that could have been cleaned up a lot more. Um, and if they had cleaned this up, then it could have been it could have been close to a ten out of ten. I don't know, man. Like it, the the themes here are are, are themes that really hit home for me, honestly. Um, so Did yeah, you that's, give that's it, I'm going to give it like a seven or a seven point five. Would you give it a higher rating if you considered how fucking amazing the goddamn soundtrack is? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, the soundtrack is the soundtrack is absolutely amazing. That might push me to an eight. I don't know. Yeah, like <laughs> might get me to an eight. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you were using, I don't know if this was a joke, and I'm the only one who was like unsure if you were being cheeky or not, but you kept saying over and over that the film was well executed and things needed to be cleaned up. Is that a pun on purpose, or is that just a slip? It well, wasn't I, an intentional pun, but I do appreciate your ability to pick up on that. Well done. Yeah, you're, <laughs> well yeah that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, before Jim goes, I just want to point out Jonah had a very different interpretation than the rest of us, but it's okay because it's hip to be square. So, you know, I just thought I'd thought I'd throw that out there. I'm never going to talk again. Please yeah, don't look at me. Yeah, oh, by the way, this is an important question. The version of the movie that you guys saw, was it, please tell me it was the NC-17. The You would know if it's NC-17 because of the uncensored sex scene that he already gives the the Whitney Houston monologue. Yes, I saw that one. That's the one I saw. Okay, because that because the the rated R version and the NC seventeen version, it's like watching Goodfellas at, at two o'clock in the afternoon on like network television. It's so scrubbed <laughs> and sanitized, you know, like it's not even worth watching. So if you saw the R rated version, I'm gonna say you didn't see American Psycho. You saw some bastardized version of it. So, oh my gosh, since we're still on, can I say one more thing? And it's like just a little, and then you can talk to him. Uh, I forgot to mention, uh, when, when he is with the hooker and he, um, he like actually starts biting her, I, I felt like that was a great metaphor for consumerism and how we are actually literally trying to consume one another and, and, uh, consume stuff. So I, I forgot to mention that. So I just want to throw that out there, even though it doesn't matter because no one's oh. going to freaking watch I, this I, part. I, I am going to add one more thing. There is a series of, a few years ago, there was a, a series of like movie inspired Ben and Jerry's flavor. And there was an American, you can Google image this American psycho flavor. And I forget, <clears throat> you have to look up to see what the flavor was. They had like gold leaf and shit in it, but it was there's a talk bubble coming from you know Patrick's face, and he said, "Don't just look at it, eat it." It's called it Ben and Jerry's Patrick Batemint. Batemint. Yeah, right. That's I'm yeah. literally looking at it. Luxurious yeah, low fat mint ice cream with Godiva chocolate chunks and a bloody red cherry swirl. Don't just stare at it, eat it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Wow. We always we always like end on ways that don't segue correctly to Jim. I just want to throw that out there. Go ahead, yeah, go ahead, Jim. How, how, go go from Patrick Bateman to your uh, ending. So yeah, I I 
I really liked a lot of what you said, Ben. Um, you know, and it reminded me, I mean, this film reminds me of this quote by David Foster Wallace, which which I'm going to read a little bit of it here. Um, because, and I'm quoting now, uh, because there's something else that's weird but true, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship uh, is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money or things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths and they will, before they finally plant you. And that is what this movie is bringing about with what I believe to be um, a satirical horror lens. Now, I've never seen a movie that combines satire and horror quite the way this does. A God Hole, as was, was brought up earlier, to quote Always Sunny in, in Philadelphia. Um, this is, it, it's, it's a perfect mixture, in my mind, of using the horror genre in a, uh, through a satirical lens. And that's what I find most fascinating about this film. I, I still read it the way I, I read it at the beginning of the uh, podcast where I talked about how I think that some of this is, a, that this is actually really real, uh, that much of this and much of the things that, uh, that are purported to be just in his head are simply the trappings of the genre conventions of satire in which the genre conventions of satire allow for extremity um, in the the work. I mean, as as you know, I keep bringing up modest proposal. Um, you know, uh, uh, Arthur Miller wrote a great satire called Privatized Executions, where he also brought in a lot of this extreme um, extreme in imagery in order to uh, pound home a satirical point. Those are the types of things that I find most interesting about this film. And so I sort of judge it based upon its adherence to satirical conventions, particularly uh, juvenilian satire. Um, and, and in that sense, I find it to be a, uh, a, a profound and interesting film, one that works in a, uh, a, a nihilistic fashion. Um, and and it also works on a character level buoyed by fantastic performances by, by all the actors. I also think it's feminist. So I think there's, there's so much going on in this film that I find it really interesting to sink our teeth into it for, I, actually we've sunk our teeth into it longer than the film has lasted, uh, which is sort of a, a, a both a, uh, uh, a boon to us, but also a boon to the film, because I think that in each case, we've been able to really delve into some of these themes. Uh, for that reason, I give it a four stars out of five, uh, which sort of translates to an eight out of 10. And the the things that bring it back are, uh, I, I would like there to be, without going into moralizing, without going into, uh, this is where you actually really can find meaning in life, um, without, without doing that, um, 
I, I would like there to be a and but for other expedients. David Foster Wallace does it in This Is Water, but uh, but I don't see it in American Psycho. So it's a little too far into the nihilistic realm for my taste. That doesn't. Uh, but as a whole, I really like this movie, and I give it I give it four out of five. Well, I just want to respond real quick to the uh, the David Foster Wallace thing where he said, and if I understand this correctly, um, that it, religion doesn't have an excess that the other like materialistic things do. Apparently, he doesn't know about Greek mythology, where there are shitload well, of gods, and they, there was never enough of them. That's kind of a, a bad joke, but... Yeah, no, I mean, he so, like, the full quote, I kind of... I kind of preceded a little bit. Uh, the only choice we get is what to worship and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some God or spiritual type thing, be it JC, Allah, or Yahweh, or the wicked mother goddess, or the four noble truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles. Uh, basically what he's saying is that in, in the case of an inviolable set of ethical principles, then you are free you are free from the burden of making of you uh, free from the burden of making a choice for yourself, and also free from the temptation to choose the materialistic world over a inviolable set of principles that you've just been given from the to quote him wicked mother goddess. Um, so those are the that's that's the distinction that he's drawing in in this is water and it's a distinction that i think is is interesting and probably we could spend an entire podcast like if we're gonna do graduation speeches the podcast then we can talk about david foster wallace i call neil gaiman <laughs> there's a neil gaiman uh speech that he does at a college that is uh, make good art it's yeah on YouTube, gaiman, look it up yeah there's a lot of commencement speeches are sort of this uh this this uh feast or famine kind of genre. You either get some of the most profound shit ever said, or you get like my commencement speeches. Well, now that you're a English graduate, you know whether cannot is one or two words. Like that was the greatest commencement. I, I was like, yes, now I know what I'm gonna do with the rest of my life because you said that to me, thanks. Um, so uh, yeah, it frees Zakari also gives a really good one. But anyway. Uh, we're, we're straying from the point four out of five is my, my overall score for this, this, uh, this film. Well, I feel like we've just ended a church service. If you want me to be honest, uh, this is <laughs> yeah. preach, <brother>. <laughs> preach, preach brother, Jim. That's what they put in the chat. So I want to thank everyone who joined us tonight. Uh, Zon star is great seeing you, um, uh, Byron, uh, Dev, Aaron, we had a lot of people kind of interact tonight, mostly Byron. Mostly Byron. I hope I'm saying his name right. Uh, so yeah, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter if you want to get our schedule. We only have two more films on the current schedule. I will be updating uh, our, up, our our next upcoming list with five more films. I got to go through and look. The way it works is we each select horror films that we like and we throw them on an Excel sheet. Um, I'm almost out uh, on mine, so I got to update mine and add some. So if there's any you want to see, like feel free to write it in the in the comments section of. Uh, of YouTube, uh, we already someone already mentioned Requiem from a Dream. We're doing that uh, right after The Shining. So the next film we're going to do on March 10th is The Shining, uh, The Shinnin, and then uh, after that on March 24th we are doing Requiem for a Dream. Um, so join us. Uh, check us out on, like I said, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You have any ideas, any films you want us to cover? Let us know. 
Uh, thanks for joining, and we will see you guys uh, in a couple weeks for The Shining. Take care.